Recently, I just finished 2 Samuel, and I came across the story where David takes a census of the people, and it's a huge deal to God. Like, David knows it's wrong. Joab, the commander of his army, comes to him and is like, please don't do this. As soon as he does it, he has a grief-stricken night, and in the morning, his personal prophet, Gad, comes to him and says, dude, you know you screwed up, and I got a word from the Lord. It says you're going to have to pick one of three options, three years of famine, three months of your enemies attacking you, or three days of direct pestilence from the Lord. And David says, man, I I don't want to fall into the hands of men. Let me fall into the Lord's hands because he's merciful. And he picks that option. The Lord does have mercy on him, just like David anticipated, but not till after the people suffer. And then the story ends with David sacrificing burnt offerings to the Lord that he purchases from a dude named Aruna. It's cool. We'll talk about that a little bit at the end. But my question, big question, why is it wrong for David to take a census of the people? I mean, isn't that just what you do? And the text doesn't explain it. That's what's fascinating. The text doesn't explain it. It assumes the reader already in their belly knows why it would be wrong for the king to take a census of the people. Here's what's really crazy about this. The biggest black mark on David's record, committing adultery with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah the Hittite to steal his wife and do do a cover-up. That, to me, is the worst thing that I ever saw David do that still to this day troubles me. I never have sat around thinking, how dare he take a census of the people? God's response to the census seems more intense than his response to the Bathsheba incident. That's what is going on. Okay, so why? Potential theories. I have a few theories. Pride, kingly pride. Perhaps David in counting the people is drawing identity from how many people he leads Is that why that is sinful? I don't know. I know there's a proverb that says that the glory of a king is in an abundance of people. Could be. How about another option? Is it that in numbering the people, he's trying to assess his military strength? And is that in some way an act of defiance against faith in God as their protector? I know that with Gideon, God kept slimming down the soldiers so that they would never think that their victory came from them or from their skill or from their power, but they would know for a fact, because he only delivered him with 300 people, that it was the Lord. So is that what's going on here? A few weeks ago, we looked at the Uzzah incident, where Uzzah steadies the cart so that the ark doesn't fall and immediately is killed for touching the ark And when you go back and look at what God had said, it was very clear that the ark is not to be touched, but in fact, it is to be carried with poles on their shoulders and that there are rings on the corners of the ark that that you put those poles through. They're not to carry it in a a cart behind oxen. They are to carry it. But they hadn't paid close attention to what God had said and they hadn't followed what God had said. But God hadn't forgotten what he said. There's something similar really interesting here. I found in Exodus chapter 30, it says this, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, when you take a census of the sons of Israel to number them, then each one of them shall give a ransom for himself to the Lord when you number them so that there will be no plague among them when you number them. So apparently, Exodus 30 verses 11 and 12, apparently it's not wrong to take a census, but when you do, every single Israelite has to offer a a, a ransom to the Lord which makes very clear that they belong to the Lord. Perhaps, 
and I think this is the one I'm most convinced of, that in taking a census, it begins to confuse issues of identity and belonging. Are the people, the kings, do they belong to the earthly king or do the people belong to the Lord? This is deeply critical. At least God views it as deeply critical. Remember when he says to Samuel, and Samuel's all upset that the people have demanded to have a king like the other nations. God says to Samuel, why are you upset? They didn't reject you. They rejected me as their king. Ah, so taking up a census feels like an extension of the idea that they have rejected. Belonging to the Lord is enough for us. I would submit to you that patriotism, as natural and healthy as it is, is always moving in the direction of danger, the danger of nationalism, where the nation itself is becoming a god or has the danger to become a national tribal god. Do you remember the story where the religious people are trying to trap Jesus? And they say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Of course, they want him to say no so they can have a reason to accuse him of being a revolutionary. Because they understand that he perceives he's bringing a kingdom that is at odds with the earthly kingdom. They know that much. The kingdom is his message. So they say, hey, should we pay taxes to Caesar since you're all about this kingdom of God thing? And he says, "Uh, bring me the coin. Whose image is on it? And they go, well, that's Caesar's. And he says, well, then render to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. Super clever, all right? The money might have Caesar's image on it, but whose image do you bear? Well, you're made in God's image. So Caesar can have your money, but what he can't have is your heart, your life, and your obedience, and your allegiance. That's a clever way of Jesus saying, Caesar does not have my allegiance, and he shouldn't have yours, because Caesar's not Lord. God is our king. Again, to whom do the people belong? I think that's what's going on here. In Jurassic Park, there's a line where Jeff Goldblum's character, fantastic character, by the way, says, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Kind of also reminds me of Elon Musk's warnings over the development of AI, artificial intelligence. He says that we're already past the point of no return, that a super intelligent, self-aware AI will be so far advanced to us that similar to how an an ant, we have no trifles with an ant, they just happen to be in the way of our road we're building or our house we're constructing. He says a super intelligent artificial intelligence will probably feel similarly about humans, won't necessarily hate us or care about us, but if we're in the way of its purposes, it'll snuff us out. He also says we're past the point of no return. And uh, by the time our regulatory agencies catch up, humans are so slow and clunky, the wheels of bureaucracy turn so slow that in the two weeks probably required for an AI to advance and learn, it takes us 10 years to set up the right agencies, to even ask the right questions, to limit and oversee. I'm not actually particularly freaked out about that, but he says nuclear weapons are not a threat to humanity in any way, shape, or form compared to the threat that artificial intelligence poses to the survival of the human race. Oh, that's fun. But anyway, the point is, sometimes we're so preoccupied with whether we can do a thing, we don't stop to answer the question, should we do a thing? There's another connection that I find very interesting on this point of could versus should. The Tower of Babel story in Genesis chapter 11, wherein we read that all the people spoke one language and had one purpose, and they were gathered together in the plains of Shinar, and they developed bricks, new technology. And they said, let us build a city and a tower that reaches to the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves that we will not be scattered all over the face of the earth. So these humans are 
gathering together with total unity, seeking to find a sense of immortality and identity and purpose in their accomplishments together. Not unlike what most people try to build an identity on for the rest of their lives since then in human history. But God, this tower is supposed to rise to the heavens, but God has to come down and see. And when he sees, he says, this is bad because nothing will be impossible for them. So, in, so he confuses their languages, which is why they call the place Babel. This is bad for nothing will be impossible for them. So he actually says, when people are unified and cooperating, it's incredible what they can achieve. But apparently God considers what they can achieve a great danger to them. The next time that we see Babel being undone is Acts chapter 2. Jesus is resurrected, the early church is praying, and the Spirit comes and gives them every language, and every single language hears them proclaiming the mighty works of the Lord, and then Peter gets up and says, there's one name given under heaven whereby you must be saved. So he seems to be undoing Babel. He divided Babel when we were gathered around one human purpose, let's make a name for ourselves. And instead, he reunites a new humanity around the one name Jesus. So instead of being gathered around our glory and our achievements and our accomplishments, he's gathering us around his grace, his love, his mercy, his kindness. It's the undoing of Babel. It's very, very deep. Genesis 11 is what we see is the operating system of the human heart is the exact opposite operating system as what is introduced in Genesis 12, which is the faith of Abraham. I am your shield. I am your very great reward is the very opposite of let us make a name for ourselves. And most churches are operating in a Genesis 11 mindset. Yes, there's Bible verses. Yes, they have Christian doctrine. Yes, they have Christian bumper stickers tacked onto all their activities. But the actual functional gospel underneath it all is let us make a name for ourselves. We're actually drawing identity from what we do for God, what we build in his name. This tower and city we build for God. Let us because we all want to be a part of something successful and we tend to vicariously draw identity from a tribe or from a sports team or from a nation or from a family instead of in the gospel. Pastors are actually called to be shepherds, spiritual leaders, not CEOs. We're actually here to shape and grow people in the image of Christ and to help them relate and know Jesus. So we're shepherds. So as shepherds, our primary job is to lead the sheep to the good pastures and the still waters. That's our goal. Our goal is to not feed you, hand feed you. Our goal is to help you find the good stuff so that you can relate to Jesus directly yourself. All the under shepherds are to get the sheep to the real shepherd. Final thoughts though. David says two things that just in the, at the end of this passage that just really beautiful. First thing is, he says, let me not fall into human hands. Let me fall into the Lord's hands because with the Lord, there's mercy. And that's a sign of someone who knows the Lord's character. I think one of the hallmarks of Christian maturity is when you come to know the Lord's character. When I was starting out in this Christian life, I honestly thought of God as big and strong and powerful, intimidating and holy, difficult to approach, and I really loved the passages where he kicked butt like old school Western style. I still appreciate those things, but I have come to view God as the kindest person I have ever met. When the strongest person you've ever met is also the kindest person you've ever met, now we're doing something really special. And I love that David knows this and depends on it. Second interesting piece here. 
I will not sacrifice to the Lord burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Aruna says, just take my land, just take the oxen, just take the cart, do it. And he says, no way, I'm going to pay for these sacrifices. That is a really healthy principle. I don't know, sometimes we, we miss this, but making offerings to the Lord that are actually painful in the end brings about the fire. And not in the Samuel passage, but in the Chronicles story, version of the story. Fire falls from heaven on David's sacrifices. You know, years ago, I was sitting in a, in a restaurant having breakfast and reading this passage, and the Lord was very clear with me. He said, the fire only falls on sacrifice. And that was helpful. It was a helpful answer from the Lord because there was something I was going through at that time, and I had to make a decision. So anyway, I think we live in an age of Google where we answer questions very quickly without having to sit in the question, but I've found in my life that sometimes the most transformative parts of the, of the scripture are those parts that hit me with the deepest questions that last the longest, and I live with those questions for a while. Living with attention of the right sort can really help shape and form us in, an, in a unique way. Anyway, have a good day. Thank you.